So, good morning. Uh, before I do anything else, I want to um, introduce the teaching team. Paul, I don't think, is here. By the way, if you all don't know, Paul preaches. He's ordained in the Assemblies of God. And I believe this week he drove all the way to East Texas outside of Longview to give a one-hour service. So you can be praying for him. Uh, but next week you're going to have John or J.K., as he likes to be called, is going to be teaching. And Ron, of course, is going to be teaching. It, I know they know you, but they don't really know J.K. Uh, and then I'll be in and out uh, during the course of the semester to help this. Um, I want to briefly review last week because I think it's important to kind of keep ourselves centered. Every week has got a major point. And really, if you remember the major point, the rest of it kind of falls into place. The major point of last week was that God is wisdom, and therefore what Christians are sharing and sharing the gospel should be the wisdom of God and not foolishness. And believe me, there's a lot of foolishness on the internet. The second principle is that God is love, and therefore no kind of force, no kind of violence, should be used in sharing the gospel. That is, people have to come to Christ freely, and our job is not to force them into, the God, into faith. And that force, by the way, as I said, isn't necessarily physical, as it was maybe when Constantine converted the empire. Uh, it can be emotional, it can be mental, it can be argumentative, it can be a lot of things, none of which is what God would have us do in witnessing with people. So that's last week. Now this week is pretty interesting, uh, and it reflects the author of this study's personal inability to make decisions. Uh, because when I first wrote the book, the lesson you're going to hear was lesson one. But it's a downer. And so I couldn't bring myself to put it first for fear that readers would be just depressed by the condition of our society and therefore would uh, not read the rest of the book. So what J.K. is going to do next week was actually chapter two, as it will be in this lesson class, uh, but it's now chapter uh, one because it's about the blessed life. This week we're going to talk about what makes the lifestyle we live in the West unblessed. In fact, I almost called it the unblessed life. Uh, and next week you're going to talk about the blessed life. Why would we do that? The answer is this. Of course, people are seeking happiness, wholeness, flourishing, blessing, so that the blessed life is what all human beings instinctively are seeking. We don't know what we want, or to put it in the words of Paul in Romans, I was reading this morning, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit of God intercedes with us with sighs too deep for words. We as human beings don't always know what it is will bring us blessing, but God wants a blessing for us, and in our hearts we seek it. Okay? So this week, we're going to talk about chapter 2, which I've called Life in the ruins. And I thought I would start by reading a chapter from a book that honestly, Ecclesiastes is the book that defines the modern world and the postmodern world. It defines 
what's wrong. It defines the hopelessness of our society. And reading it over and over again is useful in thinking about how to minister to our culture. So here's what Solomon uh, says at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. What does anyone gain from all their labors which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow in the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, they return. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to study your word for this morning and begin to think about what it is that defines our culture and why it is our culture is so resistant to the gospel, we believe that we ask that you would make the words of my mouth acceptable to you and may the meditation and all of, all of our hearts together uh, cause you great joy. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So the lesson is life in the ruins. And we need to think about what is the problem? What is the basic problem uh, that defines Western civilization? And I'm going to give you three basic points. First, the loss of a Christian worldview. Uh, in the book, I say this, you know, in Europe, really for the last 300 years, the intellectuals have really not believed in God. But they were educated at places like Oxford and Cambridge. They read the classics. They knew the Christian story. And their worldview, such that it was, was formed by the Christian message. But today, that has been utterly and completely lost. Utterly and completely lost. And secondly, uh, there's been a decline in Christian faith. Um, you all know, Kathy and I spent a summer in Scotland, and uh, we love the Scottish people, and we love Scotland, and we loved our church in Scotland. Uh, but if you go to any town in Scotland today, you will note that they once had three, four, five, six in the bigger cities, many Presbyterian churches, the vast majority of which are either bookstores or bars today. Sometimes they've been made into community centers if they couldn't sell them to anyone else but the public. Uh, Christian faith in Europe has uh, dramatically fallen since the First World War, and I'll just give you what I, my take on it. In the First World War, we forget that the Kaiser was a committed Christian, and so were the people of the West. And both of these sides killed millions of people on the theory that God was on their side. And the average person took one look at that and decided maybe belief in God was a bad idea. Okay, and I, that really began. World War I sort of begins the collapse. In America, we didn't begin to suffer that collapse until the 1960s, but the combination of the Vietnam War and other things really caused our culture to begin to see this collapse. And today, as I mentioned last week, fewer than 50% of people attend church and believe in Christ. What's most troubling is in the younger generation, it gets down to about 20%, so that we can see what's coming. 
if we don't make a change, we can see what's coming because we're all going to die, most unfortunately, since we have gray hair, and a new generation is going to come, and that new generation isn't going to be in church. It's going to be just like Europe. Uh, so, and in this, there is a loss of meaning. Nothing more defines our culture than a complete and utter loss of the sense that there is meaning in life. And that sense that there is no meaning to human life is more prevalent the wealthier, the smarter, the better educated, and the more leadership potential you may have. So this decline is hitting the leadership of our society much more than it's harming uh, the um, average person. Uh, so I think I'll give you one. This is one of Chris Scruggs' little ministerial insights over many years. We like to think that the smarter people are, the less protection they need. But the reverse is actually the truth. The smarter and more capable a person is, the more capable they are of being led astray and the more protection they need when they're young. And I've seen that played out in the church so many times that I've really lost interest in defending it. Well, what is the worldview of most um, people in the world today, but especially the intellectual elite? And I want to read it to you. It comes from uh, Diogenes Allen, for those of you who've never heard of the name, which is 99% of you. Uh, Diogenes Allen was a professor at Princeton Seminary. He was a professor of philosophy and theology, and he wrote a number of books, one of which was on the postmodern condition. Here's what he says is the worldview of the most people today and especially of our intellectual leaders. We are alone in the universe, which constitutes the only reality. That is, there is no spiritual reality. In this universe, there is no embedded notion of truth, beauty, or goodness. These concepts are matters of personal choice. Humans must, therefore, create their own meaning and lies by acts of personal preference. That is, my life is my business, I just decide what I want to be. All attempts to force uh, such ideas upon others is a form of coercion by which one group forces its will upon another group. Personal pleasures are attained by the acquisition of personal experiences and things that can provide desirable experiences are how human beings create their lives. Now, what he's saying is nothing exists but the material world. What we human beings have to guide us in life is simply our pleasures, what we desire, and we should follow those desires, and in making choices to follow our desires, we will create our own life. Yes? He wrote, the, he wrote the book in the 1980s. I, you might remember I read it first in seminary. Um, well, uh, I mean, you've, you've got my thought. I can't remember what I was going to say. Um, so I want to just say it's very important to get this in our minds because you may think that's what the other guys believe, but it's not. It's what we all believe. Now, if you don't think that's true, here are some statistics that will make you think this is true. Young Christians sleep at, with their girlfriends and boyfriends out of wedlock with just the same identical similarity as non-Christians do. 
evangelical Christians get divorced with exactly the same frequency that non-Christians do. Uh, there's no evidence that our society is living on any other basis than personal pleasure. It just isn't. How many of you in business have heard people say, and we've all fallen into this, that it's all about making money? And I can make this decision even though I privately think it might be immoral because it's good for the business. I've done it. <laughs> I'm not going to put myself above anybody else. We've all done it. We all live in this soup of our culture, and we cannot divorce ourselves completely from it without great acts of will. So this should tell us that what we need in America is a great act of will in the church, an act of will that one would wonder if we have the spiritual strength to undertake. So let's talk about what is, what is it? that people, and especially young people, believe today. I'll stop and say I had a, a great blessing. Um, when I gave up law, I was 40 years old, and I went to Union Seminary, where I was stuck for three years with 22-year-olds. Uh, and th that was revelatory to me, uh, because, honestly, I grew up sort of at the end of the modern world, where we believe there was such a thing as truth, the Bible not, might not be true, but there was such a thing as truth, and that we could find it. And I got to seminary at a stage where nobody really believed anything. Uh, so here's what defines our culture. First of all, there is nothing more common to hear in college campuses than true is whatever is true for me. That is, I, Chris Scruggs, or I, Ron Skates, I get to decide what's true. For me. Now, just to stop, if we could go back to human history over the course of thousands of years, that's a fantastic statement. Nobody ever believed that. The Greeks didn't believe that. The Jews didn't believe that. The Persians didn't believe that. The Manichaeans didn't. Nobody believed that. Everybody believed there was a truth out there which we were seeking, and it was not a matter of personal preference. It wasn't Reality is whatever I make it. Once again, I could go into this, but if we think this only affects the church or only affects us internally, we're wrong. Here's, I'm writing another novel, and it really centers around uh, accounting fraud. Uh, basically, if you look in the great accounting frauds in America today, it's a bunch of people who are basically defining economic reality by what they want the books to look like. And when reality hits that, believe me, the cards fall, which I've watched happen on more than one occasion. Secondly, I alone, I alone, Chris Scruggs, I get to make all my decisions. I am the center of my universe, and I get to make my decisions. Now, once again, did anybody ever believe that in the history of the world? No. For most of human history, People who were attached to a tradition, they looked back to what their fathers and forefathers had done. They looked back to what their parents had done, and they thought to themselves, I need to organize my life somewhere in the neighborhood of the wisdom that my parents showed me. And religiously, we all thought to ourselves, well, my dad was a Presbyterian. I think I should be a Presbyterian. That certainly was the way I thought about things. Uh, uh, I, I will follow in this footsteps of my forefathers. 
But that's not the way people think today. They think that there is no such thing as tradition. Tradition is basically wrong. If you want to know what sits behind Black Lives Matters and a whole bunch of the bad ideas in our society, it's this notion that the past was all wrong. That our forefathers were all corrupted. That they didn't see the truth and therefore they did all these terrible things. And by the way, that's a terrible thought because it exempts you from thinking, I might be just like my dad. I might do these terrible things too. <laughs> so that you lack the wisdom to be self-judgmental when you begin to think that I alone make all my choices. There is no authority. Third thing, there is no authority that binds me. I'm not bound by God. I'm not bound by the Bible. I'm not really bound by the law because that's just a human invention. I'm not bound by anything. I may follow some laws just because I'm afraid of what happened if I got caught. But I'm not bound morally by that. I just have to cooperate because it's imposed on me. Next one. If it feels good, I should do it. If it feels good, I should do it. Now, once again, just to let you know, uh, throughout all of human history, the idea was if it feels good, you should ask yourself whether it's the right thing to do. The ancients all universally across cultures understood that our human desires are capable of leading us in ways that are destructive and that the wise person controls their desires. I drive Kathy crazy about this because I become sort of fanatic about this. But the fact is, if we're going to be wise, we have to control our desire for foolishness. If we're going to be wise, we have to control our desire for pleasure or for money or for power or for what makes me feel good today. If we're going to be wise, all these things have to be controlled. And our society says, no, no. If it feels good, and you want it, and you can get it, go for it. And uh, my dad, we see that every day. The, the, last, the next one is, I alone am responsible for my life story. I alone. This is a subcategory of I make all my own choices. But in the history of Western civilization, everybody thought that the story of the Bible... The, the story of Greek and Roman history, that was sort of an overarching story. And wherever I was in human history, whoever I was, I had a place in that story. I might just be a lawyer in Houston, Texas, but I was part of God's work in the world. I was part of that from creation to the end of the world. I'm part of that, and I find a place and a meaning for my life as my little part in God's story. But remember that for the postmodernists in our society, there is no story. <laughs> there is no story, and therefore my life can't fit in a story. Therefore, I just have to make up my own story as I go along. Now, this is in the book. <clears throat> I want to tell you, the, watching TV, which pastors need to do in order to preach, is really kind of depressing, I think, most of the time. But about four years ago, Kathy and I started watching uh, on television a story about a group of young people who could travel through time. <clears throat> and um, they traveled back to very significant events, the Kennedy assassination, the first space launch, 
All throughout human history, they traveled back to events. But there was another group of people, this group of people, which we might largely call bad corporate America. Uh, they also were going back in history to try to change history so that they could control the world. Now, as the story unfolds, these young people are trying to do the right thing, but they have no boundary to do so. Occasionally they think there might be a God, but they always conclude there's not. So they just do whatever seems to be right, and of course most of the time it involves violence. I've got to kill this bad guy. So the moral of the story, as I say in this book, is that uh, there's really people, we're just alone in the universe. We have to make our own decisions. When bad guys kill good guys, that's bad. But when good guys kill bad guys, that's okay. Now that fits into what a theologian calls Walter Wink calls the myth of redemptive violence. If you don't remember any fancy word I speak in the course with that, Walter Wink, who was a pretty left wing, had a brilliant insight that we all think, and Americans especially think because of the Civil War, World War II, etc., that by acts of violence we can bring God's kingdom into the world. We can act justly. We can make good things happen. We might kill a few people along the way. Uh, and this myth of redemptive violence is wrong. And it's destructive and it permeates our culture, including this little show I was telling you about. Okay. Finally, and the one that I saw played out in my career, he who dies with the most toys wins. I once had a law partner who said, I cannot look at a single piece of real estate anywhere in the world without thinking how much it, I would like to build a condominium on it. <laughs> uh, it's whoever dies with the moat. We acquire things. And our whole culture, by the way, every day, everywhere we go, it's built on that. It's built on that. It's built on selling us with the notion that the reason for my unhappiness is I'm now driving a gas-powered Volvo. I should have a Tesla, and then I will find happiness. I, I, I'm unhappy now uh, because I'm three pounds overweight. I should go to a diet program, and when I f lose that three pounds, I will find eternal bliss. I'm unhappy in my marriage right now because my wife doesn't meet all my demands. I should find a new and younger wife, and then I will find bliss. We're all sold into the notion that he who dies with the most toys, you define what you think are your toys. I don't get to define that. They win. This is our culture. Now, a problem is that this false idea, this false idea is shared 24 hours a day, seven days a week through the media, movies, social media, books, etc., the average child in America, 10 years ago when I looked this up, saw 50 sexual acts a day on TV. Now, how successful are the parents going to be in trying to overcome that when they get to be, say, 16 and hormones are raging? That's what we face. That's what we face. We face a culture that is saturated America has become a 24-hour-a-day entertainment society. We are being entertained to death. Now, it took me a long time to figure this out, but if you want to know what CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and all the channels are, they're not news. They're contemporary events entertainment channels. 
That's why we have all this arguing and fighting and dramatic stories told over and over again. It's not because they want you to know any more than you knew before. They just want to entertain you so that you'll watch them next tomorrow night on TV. Actually, uh, most of what we read in the media does almost nothing to educate us about the true problems of our society. Which, once again, this is a criticism. If you want to know my personal advice to you is, be very suspicious of the latest events that are being promulgated in Washington. Because often, all that's being done is we're being entertained to death so that we will not watch what the sleight of hand really is. <laughs> we're just being trained to watch the surface of things and not think about what's really going on and who's really getting rich out of this. Thirdly, the media promotes this culture based upon satisfaction of desire. You know, uh, this is another one of my one of my favorite movies. I think was Batman Two. So the thesis of Batman Two was you have screwed up Batman, Bruce Wayne, who meets this screwed up girl, and these two screwed up people are going to find eternal happiness together. Ron, did that ever happen to any scooter person in your church? No. Two screwed up people do not find eternal happiness. They find more screwed upness. That's what they find. But the media tells us that these two broken people can somehow come together and through the miracle of hormones, they're going to find a kind of eternal happiness. Once again, something that no society in the history of the world ever believed was logical. And nobody ever believed that was logical. Okay. All right. So, here's the features again. I'm not going to go through over them again. Oops, I see what I did. All right. All right. The dysfunctional result. What is the dysfunctional result of the way our culture is organized? First of all, self-assertion and ethical short-sightedness. I mean, if you're told if it feels good, do it. If you're told you're responsible for what you do, then what you do is assert yourself, right? And it, it's got to be right because I want to do it. And I call it ethical short-sightedness because often it leads people into situations that are highly destructive. Let's just take drugs as a little example. It might seem right that I'm going to get a pleasure out of this short-term high. But you know, some people never come home. There was a young man who used to visit our church in Cordova who one time took a, a hit of cocaine. It happened to be laced with another drug. He went psychotic and he never came home. That young man, who was, by the way, pretty smart in my estimation, he used to sit in my office and talk to me all the time. Uh, hey, I thought he was pretty smart. He had religious delusions, but I thought he was pretty smart. Uh, he will never have a job, will never be able to make a living will never be able to have a family, children, grandchildren, all the pleasures of life, because of one single short-sighted decision, a glorification of violence. Just think about how much our movies glorify violence. And once again, in the Christian tradition, I'm not going to speak about all of history, but in the Christian tradition, violence is something to be avoided. It may happen, it may be necessary, but it's to be avoided at all costs because it's evil. And the one who participates in it cannot exempt themselves entirely from the impacts of the evil. 
we constantly oversimplify complex problems. Nothing, nothing characterizes our media and our government more than the oversimplification of problems that will require very complicated solutions and take a long time to solve. Name your problem. The budget, <laughs> the size of the government, you name your problem, it isn't going to be solved by electing one president who signs one order and it all goes away. In fact, most of them would take several presidents over several terms, working harmoniously to make them go away. <laughs> um, and finally, an unwillingness to exercise restraint, to have patience and use wisdom in solving problems. We're all addicted to the idea that one big solution to our problems that we could impose could solve them. But big problems aren't solved that way. I made my career in business and my career in pastorate turning around dysfunctional organizations, particularly churches. But whenever I would go into a church, guess what I would say to myself? This is going to be five years of misery. I'm not going to get up in the pulpit, preach a good sermon, everybody follows Chris into the promised land. I'm going to face opposition and pain and deceit for five years. And the same thing is true in business. You go into a troubled company, you can't turn it around right away. You're going to face opposition and deceit for a long period of time. And you have to exercise restraint. You have to be patient. You have to be wise. You have to discipline yourself to love. And you have to do it over a long period of time. Okay. These problems impact our church. And I'm going to give you what I think are four. First of all, entertainment impacted worship. Now, you may think I'm talking about the contemporary service downtown. I'm not. Uh, downstairs, I'm not. Uh, because guess what? For those who like classical music, an organ service can be entertainment impacted worship. <laughs> uh, so it's whenever the media of the worship service is more important than the content of worshiping God. You know, we go to, uh, when we're up in Austin sometimes, to a, an Eastern Orthodox church where they have no organ. They have six people, some of whom sing off-key, and they chant songs written in the 6th century as part of the liturgy. But one thing that does is it takes your mind completely off music. <laughs> it takes a complete, it's all on what's being said and done. It's all on the worship of Jesus because there really isn't anything fancy or fun to think about. Media-impacted learning. Now, I want to be careful. Media has given us some powerful tools to ruin laptops. Um, Media has given us some powerful tools to convey information. But, you know, through the history of the world, education wasn't really thought of as being totally informational. It was thought about building the character of a person. I love Morse and Endeavor and Lewis and all the other Oxford. Well, Oxford once tried to turn out young gentlemen who would lead British society. And if you watch the shows today, you can see it's now just this ethical and moral chaos uh, because they are giving great information and the people that work there are brilliant and they know a whole bunch, but they're not forming anybody's character. Well, they are. They're forming a character of nihilism. Um, secondly, thirdly, the replacement of personal relationships by the use of media. Uh, this one is really important because it's going to be the foundation of the whole theory of the book and the whole theory of what we're talking about. Nothing can possibly supplant personal 
relationships. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall have eternal life. God decided to have a relationship with human beings through His Son not to send us a message, a tweet, believe. <laughs> he didn't send a tweet. He sent a person. And we cannot supplant in the church the power of personal relationships for information. Period. The reduction of discipleship to learning information in media-impacted ways. Being a disciple is not just about knowing the four spiritual laws. It's about following a person, Jesus. It's about entering into a relationship with Jesus through the church. It's about living your life with Jesus through the church. So that information is part of what we need, but it isn't the whole thing. Or as some of my friends would say, it ain't the whole enchilada. Okay, now, a word about postmodernism, I, I, I want to say because... Um, it's easy to beat up on postmodernism, and I'm not a person who thinks we should do this. Um, all the word postmodern means is after the modern world. That's all it means. And there's lots of reason to believe, in fact, I think this is true, that we are not now yet in the postmodern world. What we are in is the nihilistic endgame of the modern world. So my own personal belief is what we call postmodernity is really not postmodernity. We're just in the changing of culture. In the middle of it, we don't know what we're, where we're headed, and so we call it this thing called postmodernism. But really, it's just the negative aspects of modernity reaching their end game. That's what it is. Um, there is a thing, negative postmodernism, or what we sometimes think with deconstructionism and some of the French-inspired philosophies, it's nihilistic. It began with Nietzsche. It's nihilistic. There's no truth. It's all willpower. The, the guy with the most power wins. There is a form of positive postmodernism represented philosophically by people like Alfred North Whitehead and Charles Peirce, the great American pragmatist, and others uh, that do believe that we are beyond the modern world. This ideal that we can stand outside of reality, make decisions, control reality, that things are just simply rocks and forces, that idea is wrong. They believe that. But they do believe that there's such a thing as truth. So often they're called critical realists. We are discovering the truth as we go through human history. We don't got it all yet, <laughs> but we're discovering it. Uh, and that the world is like a process. I, I'm reluctant to go into this, but just let me tell you that one of the problems with the first part of what I've told you is underneath all of this is Newtonian physics. And we've known for more than a century that that's not the way the world is. The world is not made up of matter and forces. It is not. In fact, we know today with almost certain mathematical certainty that the world is made up of fields that are all interconnected that have no material reality at all. They're just potentialities and that they can only be described mathematically, i.e. by something that's not material. <laughs> okay, so we've known that the modern world and all this stuff I've been telling you can't be right for a hundred years, but our culture still operates on the basis of an outmoded worldview. And one of the great gifts the church can give to society today is to 
help it get out of a worldview that is partially true. You know, when you drop an atom bomb, you get a lot of power. <laughs> it's partially true. But sitting under that thing is something else. We Christians call it love, okay, and wisdom. Okay, uh, so this is what I want to tell you. The impact of postmodernism on religion is not entirely negative. It was the modern world that thought there could not be a God because there was nothing but material forces and matter. The postmodern ideology holds that there are immaterial realities and that opens up a big wide door for God, okay? Uh, and so we should be careful about criticizing, I think, postmodernity. Post there's a lot to criticize, and you'll hear me criticize it during the course of these lessons, but there's also some hope there that we should latch on to. Okay, so what should our response be? Where are we? Oh, gosh, we've gone fast. First of all, we need to have an emphasis on historic Christian teaching. Now, once again, I've already told you that that's not the whole ball game, okay? But you really can't have a coherent society unless you have a coherent teaching in that society, right? <laughs> so that we really do have to build a Christian view of the world and of our society and of our own lives, and that cannot be done absent some teaching. That's why we have Sunday school classes. But it's not enough, because we have to be in the business of rebuilding strong Christian community. We have to be in the business of rebuilding small, strong Christian community. Uh, this is another story from my past, but, um, you know, what is strong community? What is it? I think most of us have lived isolated by our privacy fences for so long, so many years, we may not really kind of understand what it is, but uh, my children and my wife don't always think this was a blessing, but we had the blessing of living in Brownsville, Tennessee for a long time. Brownsville, Tennessee had 7,000 people, 3,500 of them, actually probably about 4,500 of them were black, uh, 2,500 of them were white. Everybody in the town knew everybody in the town, knew everybody in the town. They knew everything you did. They knew everything you wore. They knew everything you drank. Uh, they knew everything about everybody because it was a small town. Of course, in my church, I had no sinners. Um, <laughs> two events just strike in my mind. First of all, one of our members was a gay. And he'd retired from the teaching profession, moved back to Brownsville because it was a cheap place to live. Uh, and, you know, here's what I learned. We might gossip inside the church about it. But if anybody attacked him who wasn't part of our fellowship, they were in big trouble. They were in big trouble. Especially if it was somebody from the outside, like, say, Memphis. Uh, they were in big trouble. Because, you see, we were a community, and we had all these. This man was related to an old, 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 old family. Um, and, uh, well, the second one I want to tell you about is another little event that a woman came to my office one day, and she told me that she'd had an affair, and it was going to become public. And... Um, she didn't know what she was going to do. And I said, well, here's the bad news. Everybody in town's going to know about it before we finish talking. Here's the good news. It's a small town. This can only last two weeks. Two weeks from now, somebody else is going to have an affair, and you'll be off the hook. <laughs> By the way, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> it's precisely what happened. Uh, 
You see, community sticks with one another irrespective, really, of what happens inside the community. We love who's part of us irrespective of what they may or may not do that we approve of all the time. Another little thing about this church is it's a small town. I had the head of the Democratic Party and the head of the Republican Party both in the pews on Sunday morning, and I learned real quick I couldn't talk about politics. Real quick. Interestingly enough, these two people who publicly disliked each other intensely always hugged each other when they came to church on Sunday <laughs> and were actually great friends and had dinner together all the time. Uh, so that community overlooks differences of opinion, of theological details, uh, of moral indiscretions, as it bonds itself in love. And we have to be about the business in the church of building that. I think I'll jump ahead a little bit. In a big church like this, that's really hard to do, which makes what you're doing in this class so important because I might not be able to bond 4,000 people together, but I got a shot at 40. Okay? So big churches are, are essentially made up of little groups of churches where this love can be shown, and then it's the job of the leadership to bind those groups together in some kind of a love. By the way, not so easy as Rob knows. Ron knows. Uh, but that's what the job is. And it, it's a hard job to build community. We have to have confidence in the power of the gospel. We do not have to have any confidence in ourselves. That's the good news about that statement. We don't have to have the slightest confidence that we're smart enough, good enough, moral enough, spiritual enough, or otherwise to change the world. We do have to have the confidence that God is wise enough, powerful enough through the gospel to change the world. That's all we have to have. That, by the way, is all the disciples had. They were not smart. They were not successful, by and by large. Uh, they were losers. Uh, but they did, when they left Jerusalem, have confidence that Jesus has ridden from the dead and he would be with them and that he had the power that they would need to change the world. That's all we have to have. We don't have to have any more than that. Uh, it's not about us. We have to be willing to be different. Now, this is where it's really kind of hard. And, you know, I've lived most of my life, um, fortunately. Um, it's hard to be different, isn't it? It's hard to have five dresses when you can afford 400, isn't it? It's hard to drive a car less than you can afford. It's hard to eat less than you can have. It's hard to live differently than people around you. But we have to learn to do that. You know, I've reached the point where it's not my business to convince my children or anybody else what proper sexual morals are, for example. It's just my business to live it out in my life. That's my business. <laughs> my, if I'm different, that's fine. I'm just different. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, this is another little story I'll, I'll tell you, but um, there's a conference held in Atlanta by Andy Stanley's churches called Orange, and it's a going thing. And my staff love to go to Orange, particularly the youth staff, and they made me go along all the time. So uh, it's hard for you to realize this, but of course there was a time when one of the things young people did, they may still do it, is they would take their shirt tails out and then wear a sweater with a shirt tail hanging out underneath. Remember that? Remember that style thing? So all these 58-year-old men are up on stage with their shirt tails out and a sweater on. And the staff said, we really wish you would do that uh, on Sunday morning. And I said, you know, it's not me. I'm preppy. I'm sorry. 
but I'm not going to run around in blue jeans with my shirt tail out on the theory that this somehow advances the gospel. I don't have anything against anybody else doing it, although I think it's foolish for 55-year-old men to pretend like they're 26, but I don't have to do that to relate to a 26-year-old. I just have to love them. In fact, all these visible things can allow me not to love them because they think I'm cool. Well, I don't want them to think I'm cool. I want them to think I know Jesus. That's all I want them to think. So a willingness to be different. You have to decide for yourself how you're going to be different. I don't get to decide that. It's different for everybody. There's not one way to be a Christian. <laughs> okay? Uh, there's as many different ways to be a Christian as there are Christians in the world. That's how many ways there are. We all have Christ, but we're all different. And finally, a willingness to serve people lovingly. A willingness to serve people lovingly. Um, so, I think I'll tell one more story. This has to be, this is why I'm here today, by the way, so it's, it's important. Um, when Kathy and I were 39, she was only 12 at the time. Um, um, our church went through the same thing you all went through, Article 13. And um, Kathy's parents, Kathy's father was the clerk of the session. Uh, they were violently opposed to leaving. All of our best friends were young evangelicals. They were all determined to leave. Um, Kathy and I thought both sides are misbehaving here <laughs> and uh, we're not going to be part of this. And so uh, for the first time in my life, I had to be hated by everybody that I loved and that I thought loved me. And I say this because it's true of you. It's been true of me several times. Whenever God wants to do something really important in the world, Somebody has to carry a cross. I'll just repeat it so it can sink in. <laughs> Whenever God wants to do anything really important in the world, somebody's got to carry a cross. And my cross was just not being liked by my friends and my family. Uh, it's happened since. Well, I don't want to go into the detail. I can't remember what we called ourselves, but by the way, at a church of 3,000, we found about 12 people who wanted to do that. Um, but that was the first time, but it was transformational for me because I've learned over and over again in business, in the church, in private organizations, when God wants to do something, it isn't easy, and not everybody agrees you're right, <laughs> and not everybody wants to go along, and you have to carry a cross. That's the way the universe works, unfortunately. Which, by the way, a culture that believes in pleasure, power, personal, none of that makes any sense to them, believe me, but it makes sense to me. So, a final word, and then I'll answer questions. Christians fundamentally believe that by reaching out in love and service to others and sharing the gospel, people will, without compulsion, respond by the power of the Holy Spirit to call, to respond to the call of God to live lives of wisdom and love. That's what we believe. That 
if we share the gospel with others without any kind of force or violence, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will call his people together and people will be empowered to live lives of wisdom and love. That's, that's what we think. And that's what we need to do day after day, wherever God takes us, which in three weeks I think will be to that point. I think you get to teach that great lesson. Um, okay, so any questions? Yes? The last point about loving service. I listen to a lot of podcasts by atheists and far left deconstructionists <laughs> interested in their approach to things. Some of them are pretty persuasive. But then a thing like Maui happens. Who's on the field there? Samaritan's Purse, World Vision, headline of the San Antonio Express News, Texas Baptist Men are over there. Where are the atheists running to help people? Zero. Some of them may, but it, it is true what you're saying. They've done studies and show that Christians are far more likely to respond to disasters of all kinds, natural and otherwise. And of course, if you look at history, all the hospitals were started by Christians. And most of the educational institutions were begun by Christians. Although they mostly gone. Oh. But uh, that's a great, I mean, that's the greatest witness in the midst of Finding that small way in which we can serve, and you know, I'm, you know when, I'm, when you're 27, you can serve in ways that you can't do at 75. Uh, but uh, the fact is just finding whatever small way you can serve and serving in that way, and I say this, nobody is ever too old to pray. So there's a service we can all do. <laughs> uh, because we can all pray whatever our physical or mental state might be at the time. Well, any other more questions? Yes, ma'am. Back to the slides that you showed, that the new physics acknowledges that there's this connection. Yes. And I've heard you talk about Pogliani, but why don't you, like a one-minute summary, explain what well, these new physicists are saying that means that they actually have a, have a faith? So I'm just going to give you, first of all, as far as back as Einstein, relativity theory, we've known that the universe, <clears throat> there was no privileged position in the universe, okay? That is to say, there's no one spot in the universe that's privileged over other spots, okay? Which tends to create a relational model of the universe. But more importantly to me is quantum physics, because quantum physics, at the depth of it, and Kathy knows I read it all the time, uh, posits that the universe is simply a collection of fields, fields are mathematical in nature, uh, that can be described mathematically and which have potentiality to become uh, things, okay? Uh, but the word particle simply cannot be accurately applied to anything. There are no fundamental particles. These things that scientists call fundamental particles, that's a, uh, that's a, a Newtonian hope, are nothing but fields. Now, Einstein never liked this. He always thought there has to be some problem here because this can't be true. Uh, so he invented a paradox, 
Einstein's paradox, which he gave to Niels Bohr. The paradox was that this would imply that any two particles that ever touched each other would remain entangled forever, despite the fact that they would be at opposite ends of the universe. And to, for let you know, E equals mc squared, no signal can tra travel faster than the speed of light. It is not possible in Newtonian physics, or relativity physics for that matter, uh, for information to be shared faster than the speed of light. So, he thought he'd won. But in the 1960s, Alan Aspect and a group of physicists did an experiment that showed that, in fact, it is true that if you bring two particles into contact with each other and separate them by the entire distance of the universe, they remain entangled so that if you change the spin of the one, immediately the spin of the other changes despite the fact that the signal couldn't travel that fast. Which means they're not apart. That's what it means. They're not a part. They're one thing. Somehow the universe is one thing. <laughs> okay? And at the root, that one thing isn't material. <laughs> now, I don't want to play too much about this because, as I said, uh, let's face it, a bullet hitting my body today will cause a lot of damage under the laws of Newtonian physics. <laughs> uh, so we still live in a Newtonian world. We can't get out of that. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. That's what I want to leave you. It's not the end of the story. So I'll just tell you one last thing. This has happened to me twice now in ministry. Twice. So I notice in my church that the minute we start a war, say someplace in it like Iraq, domestic violence increases in my little church, let's say someplace like Memphis, Tennessee. Which tells me that on a spiritual level, we can't totally get away from the impact of violence. When we set it loose, we've set it loose in the universe, and we get hurt too, which should make us reluctant to resort to violence, shouldn't it? Which I think is what the gospel's all about. Uh, once again, I don't want to play this too much, but to say that we don't need to fear science, nor do we need to fear all of postmodernism because there's truth there that we can use to share the gospel, if that makes sense to you. And our job is simply to share the gospel. Uh, it's up to physicists to decide what the universe is made of, biologists to figure out what the human beings are made up of. That's not my job, uh, although I'm very interested in what they do. Thank you for asking that question. I hope I've now confused everybody sufficiently. Uh, um, Anybody else? Yes, sir. Down. They can't build up. Everything in the church, including the buses, said God is love, God is love, God is love. So when you said that, it reminds me of that. Yeah. I think you, I'm going to give you the last word. God is love. If we can hold on to that, we'll go a long way to healing our world. If we can just hold on to that, God, and he's not any old kind of love. He's self-giving love. He's the love we saw on the cross. Or as I like to say, God didn't save us because we were cute. 
He saved us because he had decided to love us when we were not so cute. Kathy was always pretty cute. But me, I was a major sinner. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this class that we've had. Uh, we thank you for the time we've had together. Lord, this is a hard lesson. It's a difficult lesson. It's a complicated lesson. It's a confusing lesson. It's even a depressing lesson. Uh, help us to take from it the news that we live in a world that has gone astray, uh, that many people are hurting their own happiness and lives by making short-sighted decisions that take them away from the ground of their happiness. Now, Lord, please help us to see that and not to reject them in anger or distaste, but to love them with that same love that you loved them when you sent your son. Now, Lord, we pray that you be with J.K. next week. Uh, there's no positive statement of how we might do this more important than the Beatitudes. And so we thank you for that lesson that you're going to bring through him next week. And now as we go to our church service, we pray that you would allow this church to be a little beacon of your wisdom and your love right smack dab in the center of San Antonio. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.